while you're grabbing your Bibles and turning to John chapter number 4. I wonder if you'd join me in prayer. Lord, your mercy is more, so much more. Your word tells us that no one is righteous, not one. No one understands or seeks after you. Each one of us has turned aside and done our own thing, and yet we've turned aside and run right into your mercy. Lord, we are so grateful that Jesus Christ paid our sin debt on the cross. That he was buried in a borrowed tomb and rose on the third day as resurrected King and Savior and is with us now in this place in the person of the Holy Spirit pointing us to himself. Father, would you glorify yourself? Give us ears that are attentive to your word, eyes that are captive to what you want us to see this morning and a heart that's like clay to be molded in your hands. We ask these things, grateful for your mercy, in that name above every name. Let the church say amen. 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 If you're just joining us for the first time this morning, welcome. Uh, The notes are available online. They're on the church app. They're also accessible through your Bible app. Uh, If you want to get it, there's a link to get it that way. We're in the fourth chapter of John, and we're in the fourth backdrop, if you will, the fourth major scene where Jesus is having conversations and encounters with folks that are impactful that John wants us to see. Now, John the Baptist has been sprinkled throughout some of our text last week, a significant time with him as he shared some things. Pretty incredible. I love that message pointing to Jesus. It was a wonderful time in God's Word. But think back with me as to where we've been as we've walked with Jesus. We've been at a wedding with Jesus where the first sign, the first miracle happened, the wedding at Cana. Jesus is at a wedding and teaches us something about the way that he's going to do things differently. We've gone with Jesus to the temple where he shows up expecting a house of prayer for all nations that glorifies the Father and instead He finds selfish, sinful greed taking over what is, uh, should be the house of God. It's become the house of man. Then we find Jesus with Nicodemus. I'm going to spend a moment there in just a few seconds. But Jesus with Nicodemus, a Pharisee, one of the greatest of the greatest Pharisees. He's spending time with him. So here he is uh, touching these Three areas so far, and this morning our text takes us to a sacred well on the outskirts of Sychar in the land of Samaria. Think back with me for just a moment to Jesus and Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a man of high intellect and religious authority. He was publicly recognized and reasonably well-to-do, and he was civil and he was moral and he was upstanding. Now, if we're not careful, in 2023, in the Western church model that we've inherited, we think those are big fish to catch today, right? We like people that look good, that talk good, that act good, 
that we don't have to do a whole lot of cleaning up, but just kind of slide right in the pew and sign our card and do our thing and say our words and sing our songs, then, hey, praise God, I'm a part of the family. Amen? Right? Not a lot of tweaks there. I mean, think about it. Nicodemus is, is as upstanding as you can get. Jesus did not ignore the up and in crowd, but he also went to the down and out. His message to Nicodemus, as up and as in as Nicodemus was, was, you must be born again. He could be found in the, with the same heart and the same message among the down and out, the despised, the marginalized, the rejected. He moved among the outcasts, among the voiceless, among the vulnerable. And I want to encourage you, spoiler alert for the message today, he still does that today. And whether you think you're on the up and in, I just want to add Jesus to your life. I've come to tell you this morning, you need to be born again. And whether you think you've sinned so much and gone so far that you could never be reached, I've got news for you. His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness. New every morn. Our sins, though they're many, His mercy is more. Jesus and the woman at the well... Contrast that with Nicodemus. You couldn't find two more opposite people at opposite situations of life. You've got a noble religious leader. You've got a woman of ill repute. You've got a moral upstanding citizen. You've got an immoral ostracized community member. You've got one of the chosen nation. You've got a hated ethnicity of the day. You've got one that comes to him by night with questions and one that he goes to in the bright light of of noonday. Opposite people, opposite situations, but one common need. Rich or poor, religious or secular, they both need Jesus. And need Him to do a work on them from the inside out. I've come to tell you this morning, rich or poor, religious or secular, up and in or down and out, Republican, Democrat, Independent, African, Asian, American, everyone, everywhere needs Jesus. Amen. This morning we're going to look at two aspects of Jesus' engagement with this woman at the well that I think will help us. Why do we gather week after week? So not just to feel good about ourselves and to get a little pep talk and Get a shot in the arm that helps us survive to the next week. That's, that's not really what church is for. We, we've gathered here as an act of obedience to what God's commanded us to do. We want to worship together and fellowship together. We want to edify one another, build one another up in our most holy faith. We want to be confronted with the word of God and conformed into the image of Christ. All of these things are kind of the multi-layered reason that we gather on Sunday. So the text here this morning, I think, helps us to worship Jesus better. And I think it edifies the body in that way. But it's also really, really important text for our evangelism outside of the church. And I think we'll encourage you this morning as ambassadors for Christ. I know that Jesus is God's own son. I know he's truly God and, and truly man. And I know that he knows all things. I get all that. But I think there's some things we can learn as we take our first bite out of this, I'm going to do some extended reading in a moment in the scripture to give you the whole rest of the account. But I want to say to you, um, it's too much to tackle in one sermon. I don't want to be here that long. It's, it's a lot of text. So what I'm going to do, this is the first bite this morning. 
And then we'll take a bite next week and then a bite the third week. And then we've got Palm Sunday and Resurrection Sunday. Let me remind you, Paul would write later that we, in 1 Corinthians 2, we can have the mind of Christ. As we spend time in God's word, as we get in the word, the word gets into us and he remakes and remolds our minds from within, transforming us into something that brings him glory and honor. And if the spirit of Christ lives within us, the church, then it follows that we can learn something from Jesus as we think about engaging those around us. When we did our scripture reading just a moment ago, we stopped in verse 15. Where the woman says to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Mark, I'm going to adjust where I'm picking up. I'm not going to start at one. I'll start at verse 16 there with the text. I'll try to put it on the screen for you. You can follow along in your Bibles if you like. Let's read the rest of the account with the Samaritan woman. I think it will help us for today and the coming weeks. So she says, uh, give me this water so I won't be thirsty. Verse 16, Jesus says to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying um, that you have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus says to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews, verse 23. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Wow. Can you imagine that moment? She's like, I'm waiting on the, that what you're saying is interesting, but when the Messiah gets here, he'll clear it up. And Jesus says, hey, guess what? That's me. Just then his disciples come back. They marvel that he was talking with the woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town. Come see a man, she tells the people. Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Then we go change scenes back to where Jesus and the disciples are. They were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said one to another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. Verse 37. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Now the scene shifts back to the hillside, and we see many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And 
Many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Amen? I know it's a long passage reading, but there's the account. That's the woman at the well account. A few things I want you to take note of as you are taking notes this morning that I think we can learn from this first section. The first uh, nine verses we'll focus on this morning. I want you to write this down in the first little section there. A heart of outreach. A heart of outreach, verses one through six. I think we see uh, some intentionality clearly leaping off the page to us in what Christ does, and we can learn from that. In verse 4, I don't have it on the screen. You can look at it in your Bible. The ESV renders that in verse 4. It says in verse 4, he had to pass through Samaria. Do you see that? And he had to pass through Samaria. How many of you have been in church long enough that you remember when they said, take your Bibles? They were talking about the King James translation of the Bible. Does anybody remember that? Am I dating myself? Y'all knew I was old, but you didn't know I was that old. Okay. Not the new King James, but the thee, thou's, ye's, all that. Okay. So in the King James, I remember this that sticks out in my mind because the phrasing says, he, I love this, must needs go through Samaria. Right? Because that's how people talk. He must needs go through Samaria. But I want you to hear the weight of what the translators are struggling to convey, which is more than just if I had a, you know, one of those whiteboards here, I'd be teaching. I'd have something drawn. I'd say, here's here's uh, Jerusalem. Right. Here's where he's going. And and there's there's a path straight through Samaria. So if you look at a map and I look at a map and you see and he went through Samaria, you go like, of course he did. It's the straightest distance. Apple maps would take him that way. Like you'd pull up the three routes and it would say the shortest, fastest route, no toll. And you would go, yes. Right. Or it would say, have you seen this before on Google Maps or Apple Maps where it gives you the options like an hour longer and it costs you a thousand dollars? Like, what are you doing? Who's doing this anyway? So so nobody takes that option except for Jews would take that option because they would not pass through Samaria. They could help it. I'll come to that in a minute. So the King James says he must needs the the NET, the New English translation, which is uh, kind of this amalgam of all of these translations and translated works together. And they really parse. I mean, there's this much scripture on the page in a net Bible that I have. And the pages, if you seen one of these, are just lines. There's more notes on the page because the translators walk you through how they got there. And they use the phrase, they change it and say, but he had to pass through Samaria. Why am I telling you this? The ESV renders it, and he had to pass through Samaria, as though it were like, yeah, this is normal. It's not normal. It's not normal that a Jew, it's not normal that a rabbi, it's it's not normal that a Jewish leader, a holy man, would pass through Samaria. This is what I'm going to tell you. These notes aren't on the screen, just some little sub-notes here. Jesus went where most people won't go. He intentionally goes where people avoid. Now, I know that if you've been saved for a couple of years, and you've heard the woman at the well taught, you get it about Samaria. I'm not going to belabor all of the history thing. Listen, my goal on Sunday is not to teach you a lesson as though this were a classroom. My goal is to teach what the word of God says, yes, but to preach in a way that you see Jesus. 
and worship Him in spirit and truth and leave this place ready to tell everybody about a King that can save them. So, so I want to tell you about Samaria, but my goal here is not an exhaustive. You're not going to be tested for this on your Master of Divinity test with what we cover here this morning, okay? It's the shortest distance between the two points, but Jews believe they would be contaminated. Why? From the Jewish perspective, the people of Samaria were a mixed up people. A couple of phrases here that I hope will help you. The Samaritans were a blended people. They were part Jew and part Gentile. And this resulted from the Assyrian captivity in 727 B.C., and so the Assyrians, when they captured the people of Israel, they moved all these people into the northern territory, and then they forced them into intermarrying, and it just became this breed of people that the Jews wanted nothing to do with because that part of their story was painful. And so they wanted to avoid it, but they viewed them as a mixed-up people. They viewed them as a rejected people. The Samaritans were a rejected people because they couldn't prove their genealogy. They traced their genealogy back to Jacob, but the Jews rejected this. I'm imagining Dr. Henry Louis Gates on finding your roots, sitting down with them, opening the book of life for them and saying, hey, it stops right here and it gets really complicated past that. And the Jews are going, see, I told you. I watch some PBS, don't, don't judge me. <laughs> they continued though to intermarry knowing that that was against the Jewish custom. So, so they were a mixed up people, a rejected people, and they were confused people in worship because they did actually acknowledge Yahweh as the true God, but they also mixed in false idols and worshiped God. Now think about that. What's the first commandment? No other gods before me. Okay, not off to a good start. What's the second commandment? No idols. No idols. Yeah, they're, they're 0 for 2, right? Just out of the gate. Like, it almost doesn't even matter if they lie, steal, cheat, all the other stuff, because they've already broken the first two. James tells us if we break one, we're guilty in all. The Samaritans were actually going for 10 for 10. They were confused people, a rejected people, a mixed up people. They were so hated that some of the Pharisees, when they prayed publicly, they would pray, Lord, please don't raise a Samaritan in the resurrection. Now, that's some hate. I know none of you have ever prayed judgment on any of your enemies. But it was an insult to call someone a Samaritan. They would hurl that insult at Jesus later, trying to tell him he didn't belong. And yet, Jesus goes there. He goes where people wouldn't go. Why? Because there's one woman that he's going to engage with the life-changing message of the gospel. Jesus goes where other people won't go, and he does what other people won't do. I want you to notice something in verse 6. Look in your Bibles with me. It says, Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. Jesus is tired. Some of you just went, oh, amen, preacher. It is a sloppy Sunday, and I'm tired too. I lost an hour of sleep last night. You don't even know about my week. Jesus is speaking to me right now. Because he's tired. Jesus is worn out. It's around noon, the hottest part of the day. Now the well may have had a covering over it in some way, but he's tired physically from his journey. He's hot 
I want you to process that. He is hot and tired, but he's ready to do his Father's will. You know, just like us. When I'm hot and tired, I can be easily irritable. I might be alone. No? Yeah? When I'm hot and tired, the next thing out of that sequence is usually not, and ready to glorify my Father in heaven and just be on mission for him. Usually when we get hot and tired, many of us, we're ready to veg out and be left alone and get in some air conditioning. Most of us flake out when we're tired, but not Jesus, not here. He carries on when he's at the edge of his physical capacity. Oswald Sanders writes and says, the world is run by tired people. One commentator writes, most souls are won by tired evangelists. The best sermons are often preached by tired men. The best camps are run by exhausted youth ministers. The 1040 window, the unreached third world is being reached by and evangelized by tired missionaries. Christian organizations are being run by tired women and men. And you show me a successful vacation Bible school and I will show you a cadre of worn out church folk. Tired people still do ministry well. We will never do great things for God until we learn that in our weakness, His strength can shine through. Some of you think to do great things for God, you've always got to be at your best. You should set the table in your favor with your spiritual disciplines. You should set the table in your favor with your holy and righteous living in a way that brings glory and honor to God and doesn't become a stumbling block to others. But I've come to tell you this morning, if you're tired, you are a candidate for God to do great things through. Jesus was tired. Paul would write later, my grace is sufficient for you, the Lord is telling him, because it's made perfect in weakness. Paul said he'd rather boast about his infirmity, about his weakness, about the insults, the persecutions and calamities. Why? Because when he was weak, he knew the strength of God was working through him. A heart that is bent toward outreach, a heart that's bent toward others, is a heart that is bent to leaning in when you don't feel like it. When you have others on your mind and have God's mission on your mind and and have eternal things on your mind, you will push through when there's not much left. You will have courage when your strength is failing. You will sense strength from above and from the person of the Holy Spirit when you are just about to tap out. Why? Because it matters. Because eternal life is at stake. Because the gospel must be shared. Because the name of Jesus and the will of the Father and the power of the Holy Spirit compels us when we are tired to still be on mission. If your heart is Christ's this morning, then you have a heart of outreach because he's making you new. Jesus had to go through Samaria so the gospel could get to Samaria. Now, I've read you the rest of the story. The whole village, many folks in the village come together, hear the woman's testimony. Many believe on her testimony. Others come to Jesus and say, we're not even here just because of her anymore. We're here because of you. The gospel came to you on the way to someone else. You were saved to be sent. 
One interesting thing about this sloppy Sunday that we are here at Grace Covenant at the corner of East and South Boulevard in Charlotte this morning is we haven't heard the fire trucks yet. I mean, it's usually like it's a normal Sunday for us to hear them. Um, you should work here during the week. Um, be on a phone call or be taping that this weekend at Grace video in my office and be right at the last 10 seconds and oh, like it just kicked off. You're like, oh, thank you. Um, the fire station lives in a standby mode most days. I mean, think about it. The firefighters, they work out, they train, they, uh, they clean their equipment. I mean, the cleanest trucks in town are not from the guys, you know, working on their new pickup trucks. The cleanest trucks in town are sitting in fire stations ready to, to roll out. They just keep them polished and, and ready to go. Tip-top shape, checking all the systems and, and making sure everything's ready. They do these things to pass the time while they're waiting on the alarm to sound. Somebody wrote that we live as Christians like this sometimes in our evangelism strategy. We stay close to familiar surroundings of the church community. We apply another code of worship or we get a theological tune-up while all the time waiting for some sinner to walk up to our door and say, I'm lost. Could you tell me how to be saved? By the way, has that happened? Much to anybody in the room? You ever been at Walmart or something and somebody walk up to you and say, I see Jesus in you. I know I'm condemned in my sins and I'm bound for the wrath of God. Would you please tell me how the blood of Jesus can cleanse me from all unrighteousness? I'll pray right here. Happened to anybody? No? No, I, I, it's not a normal thing. We, we think that that's the way it's going to happen. The problem with that is that that's not the way this works. The world is already set ablaze. Jesus said it's already condemned and the call went out 2,000 years ago for us to be ready and on mission. And as we look at Jesus, even though he's tired, he leans in, he, he goes where others won't go, he, he does what others won't do, and he reaches who others won't reach. The second little header I'll give you this morning, and I think it ought to mark us as a church family. It ought to mark us, even if you're a guest this morning, if you, if you identify as a Christ Follower, I think these are marks that ought to mark your heart. And you be on guard when it doesn't mark your heart. So we've got a heart of outreach and we've got a heart that overcomes. How many of us read that and, right, Mandisa's blaring in our mind, you're an overcomer. Everything's going to be all right. That's not what I mean. It's not at all what I mean today. Look at verses 7 through 9 with me. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus says to her, give me a drink. Verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Every barrier is listed right there in those two verses. So Jesus takes the initiative. Jesus takes the initiative in speaking. Jesus takes the initiative in speaking to a Samaritan. Jesus takes the initiative in speaking to a Samaritan woman. We've broken like so many of the cultural rules and faux pas. And it's a massive break with culture and tradition. Why would he do this? I mean, he could have just put an ad on Samaritan television during the Super Bowl to spread the message. He could have written a book and placed it in every bookstore in Sychar, every coffee shop. He could have held a huge evangelistic crusade in Samaria's capital city, but he didn't. He went out of his way to find one woman 
who didn't even know what her greatest need was to confront her. Watch this. Watch this 2023. Watch this seeker-driven church culture. He confronts her with her depravity. And that awakens something in her to know that this is whom I have been seeking. What? What? People don't know they need Jesus all the time until we present the light of the gospel to them. People don't need something else in their life. They need someone. They need Jesus. They need me. They need you. And he's appointed us, his royal ambassadors, to carry the good news of the gospel to a lost and dying world. But we won't, we won't leave the confines and the comfort of our safe spaces if we don't think about overcoming the barriers between us and presenting the gospel. Jesus had every reason not to talk to this lady. In addition to her nationality, which I've exhausted already, she's a woman. Her gender, it's 2023, I need to say that again. That's an actual factual biological sentence. She's a woman. Her gender is an issue in this day. It is inappropriate for men and women to have a religious conversation together. Her gender is an issue. Her status is an issue. She is five Times a divorcee and now living with a man, as my granddaddy used to say, she's shacking up. She is chief sinner among the women in her village. This is not the lady you book in for Bible study. This is not who you call. Mark 2 records Jesus at a dinner with a lot of sinners and one of the Pharisees says, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus had every reason not to engage this woman, but he knew her heart. She doesn't. She only knows her situation. He knows her eternal condition. She doesn't. She only knows her situation. If Nicodemus was sure that his works were going to get him into heaven, this woman is convinced that her past is going to keep her out. Jesus meets both at their point of need and says, you need me. I make all things new. He overcomes every cultural barrier in the moment to have a conversation because why? It mattered. It would lead to life. It would lead to him being revealed as the Messiah. It would result in Sychar being reached with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the living water. In him is life and light. We have much to learn from the woman at the well. That's enough for this morning. Just to remind you that as we go on mission for God, we've got to avoid the temptation to be navel gazers, to be uh, such that we're just consumed with what's right in front of us and nearsighted and remember that even when we're tired and our life may not be going as we think it ought to go, Christ still has a work for us to do. The Holy Spirit will still put people in our path that need the light of the gospel shined into their darkness. A heart that leans toward others will send us places that others won't go. 
A heart that belongs to Christ will, will find us doing things that others won't do and reaching those who others won't reach. A heart that belongs to Christ is a heart that overcomes barriers because Christ is worth it. As Julia moves to the piano this morning, we'll have a, a moment to respond to the text in, in just a moment. D.L. Moody was walking down a street in Chicago and stepped up to a man and uh, was a stranger and he said, Sir, are you a Christian? The man's reply was, You mind your own business. D.L. Moody said, This is my business. This is our business. We have life and light that lasts for eternity to share with a dark and dying world. And if we don't tell them, who will? Maybe you're here this morning and you identify with Nicodemus. Good, moral, upstanding citizen. There's a word from God for you this morning. You must be born again. Maybe you're here this morning, you identify with a woman at the well. There's no way. If you, Pastor, if you had an inkling of my past, you wouldn't have even let me in the room. I'm not one for optics or, or big dramatic flair, but I would say this. If, if I were, I would sneak down off this platform and sit right beside of you and say, this is what Jesus would do with you this morning. He'd come to where you are and invite you to follow him. Your sin might be great. But his mercy is more. Come to the living water today. Come to the one pursuing you today. Personally, powerfully, Jesus is commanding you to repent and trust him. His arms are outstretched to you this morning. Dear friend who have not yet put your faith and trust in him. And those outstretched arms have nail-piercing scars in his hands, on his where he hung, bled, and died on Calvary's cross for your sin and shame. All that sin and shame that you think has disqualified you. Christ is coming to meet you where you are and to call you to repent and trust him. The resurrected king is calling you and he's calling us Christians to have his heart as we leave this place. His heart as we leave this place to go places others won't go, do things others won't do, say things others won't say. Reach people others won't reach. Because he's worth it. Let's pray.
Father, we need your mind this morning. We need your heart this morning. We pray that you would lead us and guide us by your spirit in a way that puts us in the path of those who are desperate for hope. And Lord, help us to remember that we don't have badges on. We have been commissioned as ambassadors of hope. And you are the living water for a dry and thirsty land. Use us for your glory and your honor this week. In Christ's name, amen.